So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and Happy New Year. I really hope you were able to spend some time with your friends and loved ones over the festive break. It's that one time of year where everyone seems to unplug. So I hope you're able to get some proper downtime. If you listen to my festive reflections episode, you'll know that I was under massive pressure to cook the family Christmas meal. And I can report that the turkey was actually delicious. So uh, that was a huge relief. And I did have a glass of champagne uh, just to calm the nerves. It was great to see that uh, we got those negative COVID tests uh, in the days before Christmas. All my family took those. And when they emerged negative, it was great to see because it meant that we, my parents and my brother and his family could come and join us for a few days. So as we look forward to the new year, I'm sure many of you are looking for inspiration on goal setting and maybe how to become a millionaire or which diet you're going to wrestle with this year. Well, I've avoided dry January, that debate and the cabbage soup diet, but I'm sure I'll be able to share a few of my personal reflections to help you in the coming weeks. I have to say I've returned from the holiday feeling like I need a gentle warm up into 2022. No shouty and extreme commitments for me, just a series of considered intentions that I need to build good habits around because I know that if I can do that around those two or three key choices, it'll make such a difference to myself, my family and Sporting Edge as a business. I've actually really missed work as well. I do love what I do and uh, my team have been brilliant as well for the last 12 months through these challenging periods. We've got such a strong team spirit and it's great to know that uh, I'm surrounded by top class people as well as top class performers in their own rights. So it's, uh, it's brilliant to be back with them and I'm sure we'll be delivering some great content and some uh, new announcements coming up soon. One thing I must do today is thank everyone who made my Mariah Carey wish come true over the break. I said that all I wanted for Christmas was a review and uh, you've delivered that with a beautiful bow on it. Phil said, Merry Christmas, Jeremy. Thank you for your fantastic insights and nurturing my winning mindset. I love your calm voice, advice and humour, listening while jogging in the week or simply washing the cars on a Saturday morning. Keep those podcasts coming. Five stars. Thanks, Phil. And Andy Cox said, thanks, Jeremy, for a year of unrivaled insights from such a diverse set of contributors. 
The value I've gained from the podcast and your members' online platform has been truly outstanding. I'm writing this having just received a positive PCR result, so sadly in isolation, but it's meant that I'm rediscovering my joy of listening to these insights and refreshing my toolkit for the year ahead. I wish you and the team around you that support you to put this together a tremendous 2022. Thanks, Andy. That's much appreciated. I'm glad you're finding all that, the videos in that members library beneficial to planning your year. And I also hope that you've recovered fully from your spell with COVID. And we've got another review from G.E.J. Dean, who says five stars, absolutely superb podcast. Great insights, not just from sport, but all over. Really enjoy listening to every week and uh, take a lot of learnings from it. So thanks so much for everyone that took the time to write those podcasts. If you do find the show helpful, please do just take those extra 30 seconds to leave a five star review and, and maybe a quick message. It's so helpful for our rankings and also for new listeners trying to navigate the plethora of podcasts that are out there. Okay, let's dive into this first mastermind session of the year, and it's a live conversation with Dr. Kate Hayes, who's been the lead psychologist for the English Institute of Sport, a Premier League rugby team, and is now the head of psychology for the Women's Football Association. So I'm sure she's going to have a brilliant impact there. I've worked with Kate on a few projects and found her insights both fascinating and really practical, which is, I think, what we absolutely need at the moment. Kate was the lead psychologist for the Team GB Olympic squad in the Tokyo Olympics, so has some brilliant gold medal messages, whether you're a performer in business, a leader, or you're actually trying to set your organisation up to develop a high-performance culture. So I've taken a section from this interactive Q&A session that I hosted with Kate before Christmas for our members club, uh, as well as having access to over 800 of our inspirational video insights and leadership strategies, our members community can also join me for these live sessions where they get a chance to ask questions of the experts themselves. So it's a great way to ensure that your mindset is primed for the year ahead. If you want more information, I'll make sure there's a link and a discount code in the show notes to give you a free month's membership. So let's join the conversation where I ask Kate to define this all-important winning mindset, which is something that we all need if we're going to maximise our performance for the year ahead. If you had to define, you know, the winning mindset or this mindset where people are able to just go and deliver under pressure, what, what are the, some of the key characteristics that you think you've seen across all the athletes and people you've worked with? I think the... Um... The the important what if we're going to break it down and be really really simplistic about this, it, what is required to be able to deliver at a World Championships or Olympic Games or the professional equivalent, an athlete needs to be able to have absolute clarity on their game plan or their competition plan, and then the confidence that they can execute that under the greatest pressure. And essentially, that that's what the athletes need to be able to walk out onto the track or to stand at the end of the swimming pool or to walk out onto the grass with with that belief system so so where does that come from well I think there's a lot of myths in sports psychology I think there's myths around um the successful athletes are the ones that get out there and they can't wait and they they have unshakable robust confidence and it, it's actually not true there are many athletes that stand on the start line wishing they were anywhere else but there at that moment in time 
um, it isn't about positive thinking. It's about confidence is essentially a set of evidence based beliefs. So it's having a belief in your ability to do something because you have an evidence base for that belief. Um, and so one of the first things and one of the most consistent findings in the sports psychology research literature is a direct relationship between confidence and high levels of sporting performance. Um, it's the most consistent um, finding. But how do people get confidence? It's so important and, and it has to be um, developed proactively. Confidence comes from a multitude of different sources and people are confident about a multitude of different things. And that comes from being proactive around how you develop that. And so that's one of the first things for, for athletes is to, is to be incredibly good at self-reflection, to identify and have a process for evaluating training sessions, evaluating competitions, understanding what works and why that works and how they might test those hypotheses and what hasn't gone according to plan and why it hasn't and how they might change that the next day. So you go through a cyclical process of um, recreating the good and eliminating the bad and, and those things feed into confidence um, where women and men get their women and men are different in how they develop their confidence how they maintain their confidence um, some people are reliant on external sources for confidence some people are more reliant on innate um, factors but it, it, it isn't true to say that you just wake up one morning with the mindset to be able to compete it takes years of hard work and proactive attention to developing a skill set to enable you to be, be enable you to perform under the greatest pressure yeah it's, it's really interesting and I think you know with so much uncertainty and disruption in the business world at the moment people are probably thinking well I know roughly where I'm heading we need to get over there somewhere but but I don't know how we're going to go about it and I think that the, you know one of the first things you said there was about you need clarity and belief in the plan and I think sometimes we, we haven't quite got the clarity in what good looks like or what my preparation looks like. And sometimes the simplest analogies are the best. And I, I often think it's like preparing for, for an exam. You know, you, you know what the exam paper is and you've got to have done your revision and your homework to feel prepared enough to go in and, and take that and whatever happens when you turn the paper over. And I think we, we often look at elite athletes and say, oh, this is the World Cup or this is the you know ashes cricket or this is the olympics and you sort of look at that as a you know six week timeline or something but actually the athletes need to see that the rainy tuesday morning when they're sort of a bit tired that strand links directly into a performance on that finals day doesn't it and one of the techniques i used there with the cricket teams was to say you know have you got goals for your training today each of the athletes mm -hmm. and they generally haven't they just the bus picked them up at nine from the hotel and they rocked up at training and, and at 11 they were going for a walk around town um so um you know it's about saying okay maybe leave a post-it note on your locker or on the window of the bus with the three goals that you've got then you go to training and then you come back and sit on the bus and say did i achieve those three things and just having that focus on those behaviors and activities that Pre that preparedness starts to be evidence-based rather than I just went to training. I don't know whether I achieved anything or not, but we sort of want people to feel like they're progressing along that plan all the time, don't we? Absolutely. One of the nicest stories that an athlete told me was about a coach who had bought them a piggy bank. And for the period of time leading into the Olympic Games, every time a um, that they'd achieve something significant in training it would be written down on a card and posted in the piggy bank or every time they'd received external feedback or every time they'd be, they'd um, beaten a pb or every time they'd made a, a significant improvement 
And then when they were in the holding camp for the Olympic Games, they opened it for the first time. And they had a, um, a visual representation of all of the hard work and all of the achievements that had taken place in that preceding period. And, and, and that I think is fantastic in terms of, of an evidence base because we quite often forget the, the successes, but we're very, very good at remembering and re evaluating the things that haven't gone according to plan. Um, and athletes often talk about the Olympic games. You have a four year period where you pay into your Olympic bank account because my God, for those three weeks, you need to be able to withdraw. Um, and, and talent isn't developed overnight and it certainly isn't lost overnight. And sometimes the preparation into a games isn't perfect. And let's look at Tokyo as an example of that. I mean, what in a unique experience. Um, and you talk about the uncertainty in the business world. There was a huge amount of uncertainty around the games. Would, they, would it happen? Wouldn't it happen? Um, the qualification events were being cancelled left, right and centre. People weren't having the opportunities that they thought they would have to be able to qualify. And, and we had to do a huge amount of work around uncertainty and, and, and allowing people to voice that uncertainty and to have it validated and normalised and to create psychologically, a psychological adaptability in our staff and our athletes who that, that uncertainty didn't go away right to the point of getting on the plane, flying there and even during the games itself. Um, it was an incredibly uncertain world and sport is an uncertain world but I think the games this time around were probably a huge um, uh, certainly nothing that any of us have ever experienced before. So so talk us through that a little bit because you you're sort of saying that the, the whinging and moaning and the uncertainty is part of the process of creating battle ready athletes because I guess yeah. You know, you could imagine on one extreme, and again, there's all these myths about the high performance environment. Your first one, you dashed that these athletes aren't bulletproof on the start line and, and you know, wanting to bring on the best talent. They're, they're actually quaking and, and perhaps wanting the bus to crash on the way to the, the game sometimes. Um, but but the second one as well, you know, how do we how do we move that forward? Do, if we've got our own environments and there is stress and pressure, how do we you know, get people to talk openly about the frustrations and concerns before we move them on and, and say, okay, let's crack on now and do something about it. Where's that balance? And I think that what the point that you've just made there is incredibly important um, without getting too technical. Um, there, there's something called the behavioral inhibition system, the behavioral activation system, which essentially means whether you're more reward or threat sensitive. Um, and you cannot get people to a point of looking forward and planning if they are naturally quite prudent and you haven't first taken the time to understand their concerns and it's it's a really important part of just um human behavior is that some people are naturally more optimistic and some people are naturally more prudent and some people will look for the things that could go wrong and, and they're controlling all the time for um for mitigating risk whereas some people are are not that way inclined and are continually looking at opportunities and their strengths and weaknesses of different approaches as there is with everything but you cannot get somebody who's naturally quite prudent to a place of optimism without first understanding their prudence you cannot move that behavior forward and it's really really important and interesting we spend a lot of time with athletes um contingency planning for big events so we will go through the what ifs and and have contingency plans in place prudent athletes love that process because they're, they're having their concerns listened to, they're, they're talking about mitigating risk, they're putting plans in place. But if you do that process too close to a major event, the optimists are gonna actually experience that as incredibly anxiety inducing because suddenly somebody's raising the awareness, all of the different things that could go wrong and they won't have a plan in place for any of it. So there's, 
there is a huge amount of balance in how you take teams of people with very different personality types and very different mindsets and get them um, concurrently ready for a big event. And, and we talk about the planning and the pieces that you need to put in place. It has to be done months and months and months out. You'd start to get into your, your heavy games prep 12 months away from the games and start taking those teams on a journey of their behavioural dynamics, how they work with each other, how they create psych safety in the team, how they are able to be vulnerable, to take risks, uh, give them permission to be able to talk about their uncertainty, have their feelings normalised, validated, etc. It's a huge piece of work with many moving parts. Um, and and it, and it has to take place a long, long way out from, from major tournaments. You, you've mentioned there about how sort of turbulent the run into some of these games are. People might pick up an injury. People might be dropped from a particular tournament that they saw as part of their you know, key preparation. How do you get people to reframe some of the setbacks that they experience through a, a season or a, or a sort of planning phase? And I think part of that also is is being really, really clear about the journey of sport and, that, and not just sport, but about anything. There is no guarantees in, in sport aside from you are going to have a bad day in the office. At some point, it's not going to work. Something's going to go wrong. And that might be an underperformance. It might be an injury, et cetera. But it's part of the process. And nobody that's successful at the highest level has had a, um, a an, an easy trajectory from, from A to B. It just doesn't work like that. And so... Again, this is where the personality piece becomes really, really important because athletes approach injury and approach setbacks in completely different ways. And, and for me, if you're working with a team or you're working with a group of people, you have to understand who is in the room. It is absolutely imperative. Um, what are the personality characteristics of this group of people? How do they respond? What are their strengths? What are their areas of development? How do they respond under pressure? How do they respond to setbacks? And how can we help facilitate an environment that gives them the best opportunity to continually move forward? Um, no two people are the same and of course I don't need to, to tell you that but the first per part of, of anything is who is in front of me how are they processing this and what is the best way to help them get to a place where they can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel and start to take some positive moves forward some athletes need a huge amount of detail around injury and have everything um, written down and planned out and they need to know what week one, week two, month one, month two looks like, at what point they could expect. And some don't. And, and some athletes are OK to be isolated from the team and some aren't. And, and everybody's journey is slightly different. So it's about understanding well, who have I got in front of me? How are they likely to respond to this? And what can we put in place and what strategies can they utilise to help them move forward? But the, the goal setting and the reflection and the planning is always an integral part of that, regardless of, of personality type. So, so is that always a partnership with the coach or, or with yourself? You know, how, how does the dynamic work? Would, would you be spending time individually or would it be the three, you, the coach, the athlete? Absolutely a partnership. And also with the, um, with the physios as well. I mean, I, I've worked, um, spent a fair amount of time working in professional rugby and, and that was always the process. We had any of the of the players that had significant injuries then we would always sit down as a as a team with the player with the physio with myself and we'd, we we would talk through personality types and their personality profiles and what would that mean for them in terms of long-term injury rehab injury rehabilitation and um, so yeah it's it's always a partnership between a, a, several people involved in in an, in an athlete's journey yeah great Okay, well, let's uh, let's get another insight here. I'm going to share uh, an insight from our members platform. And I thought, being as it's the ashes, uh, we could go to, um, let's get Shane Warnock uh, 
if anyone's listened to my podcast this week, you'll uh, you'll know that Shane Warne was the the subject. Um, so let's see uh, if we can get Warne's clips up. So there was one here about uh, getting into the zone. Um, so this is Warney talking about um, a high pressure moment in one of the World Cups where, you know, the, the question was really around, did you start to panic? Did you, you know, did you feel yourself racing, your heartbeat racing? You know, 25, 30,000 people in the stadium. How did you keep yourself calm? And, and then we can see if you can dissect this forensically for us as a psychologist and, and pick up on some of the skills that the legendary Ashes uh, player was, was talking about here. Yeah, I remember in the 99 World Cup final, um, we were in real trouble. And I, the game was slipping away from us and I had to do something. I could feel myself a bit in fast forward. You know, the game, everything was happening so quickly, it was hard to take a step back. And I remember before I grabbed my over, I just took a couple of breaths. I took longer than I would normally take to deliver the ball. And I just focused in on what I had to do. Okay, what's my plan? How am I getting this guy out? That's all I asked myself. How am I getting him out? I thought, okay, I'm going to try and get him to hit through mid-wicket. That's as simple as that. I'm not worried about the score. And it's very hard to do that. And people talk about how do you get into that? Well, how do you get into that zone? What is the zone? To me, the zone is 100% concentration on what you're about to do. And that is clearing your mind of everything, the crowd, everything. And not everyone can do that. I was very lucky that I, I, I could do that. I could compartmentalise about exactly what I had to do. And I found by asking myself a question when I was about to bowl, how am I getting this guy out? It's, it's a pretty simple question. And that got back to all my plans. So one, I was patient. Two, I was taking my time. Three, I was sticking to my plan. I was keeping it really simple. Smile, away we went. I ended up taking two or three wickets in a few overs and I got really pumped by it and started carrying on like it. I was, and the, I, I sort of dragged the rest of the team with me. And it wasn't something I was conscious about doing. So I just knew this is what we had to do right now. And, you know, it just, we happened and it was against South Africa. We ended up having a tie. We went through the final. It was an, a fantastic game. But it was, that was something I was really proud of because, as you said, the question was, you know, did you feel yourself? And I did, but I actually overcame that. And that sort of helped me for the rest of my you know, 10 years, 15 years after that, because it was just something I did. Okay, so that's uh, Shane Ward's story. So what did you pick up in that insight? He's in this semi-final, high pressure, it's all on him. What kind of tactics did you hear from him using that? That is such a beautiful example of what happens um, and how our brain functions under pressure. Um, and without overcomplicating it, the limbic system, the fight, uh, flight, freeze response, which you'll all be familiar with, when your blood supply is in your limbic system, that is all you can do. You can, you can fight, fight, freeze. And if you want to move the blood supply from that part of your brain to your cortex and to your logical part of your brain where all of the information around what you need to be able to do to execute your silver resides, you have to start speak, you have to start thinking rationally. So he's in a pressure moment there where his heart rate's up, he's feeling it, and he, and he asks himself a question which takes his blood supply away from that part of his brain and puts it back into his cortex. And he therefore then has access again to the information that he needs to be able to perform. And it's a really, it's a really simple strategy, but if you want your blood supply to go to your legs, you, you move. If you want it to go to your stomach, you eat something. If you want the blood supply to go to a rational, logical part of your brain, you have to think rationally and logically. And, and it's just such a great example of 
it, it's a myth to think that we don't engage the limbic system when we perform. We do all the time. As soon as something's important, the pressure is, is on. And you have to be able as an elite sports person, as an elite business person, to be able to control that. You have to have strategies in place to be able to move the blood supply and to be able to engage your, your cortex, which is exactly what Shane has described there. Um, yeah. he, took his, he took his thought where he needed to go. Yeah, and, and again, I'm, I'm not sure he would have been taught that. You know, a lot of the athletes actually do this naturally, don't they? But whereas, you know, somebody a, li a little bit uh, less uh, resilient under pressure might be thinking about what the papers are going to write tomorrow, or what the media or what the crowd are going to do. You start catastrophizing about the failure and the outcome. He's asking himself if he wants to win, W-I-N. I always think it's what's important next, you know, and that idea, what am I going to do next? Um, and yeah. that then gives him something very practical to do, doesn't it, rather than worrying. And just subtle things like when you when your heart starts racing, if, if anyone listening has been on the stage trying to give a speech, you know, you, you start going in fast forward. And he took just an extra few seconds to walk back to his bowling mark. Now, no one would have noticed that. Maybe he's gone sort of two or three feet wider. But that's just given him two or three seconds just to get his composure and his breathing and his thinking straight. And then he's come in and really committed to his skills rather than being sort of half baked. And, and, and that's why he dominated. And some of these oh, yeah. skills are so simple, but I just wish they were taught in schools as well, because they're life skills, aren't they? Not just for elite sport. Uh, absolutely. And, and the, the use of breath there as well. I mean, we can use our breathing to lower cortisol levels. It's, it, it's, it, it's so important that the absolute fundamental, and there are no, there are no athletes that are successful at the highest level that aren't able to do this is, is having a relentless process focus. I mean, essentially, if you strip it back, what is mental toughness? It's the ability to focus on the right thing at the right time. And that's exactly what Shane Moore described there. So partly that is having a absolute clarity on what that focus of attention needs to be, and then being able to zone out from the noise and the distraction and the poor rest decision. And what if I don't, you know, what if this kick isn't successful? What if I miss this? What if I make a mistake? It's being able to, to, to quieten the noise, to enable you to have loads of focus on what you need to do at, the, at that moment in time. And, and athletes do use um, breathing techniques for that. They do use visualization. They do have words written down on a wrist that take them back to a process focus when they're when the emotions are, are, are running out of control. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're life skills, aren't they? And wouldn't it be great if the, if the kids were learning this at school because it would, um, it would pave the way and make things a hell of a lot easier as we got older. That, that's a good question for you next about social media. You know, the kids are, are sort of immersed in it. We're, we're perhaps, uh, you know, from a world that, that didn't grow up and our confidence was built in a, in a sort of an analog way or, or you know, mm -hmm. real life way. And it's almost like they're outsourcing a lot of their self-esteem and confidence to whether they get likes and, and sort of reposts on, on some of the social media channels. But What's the strategy for athletes in, in, in big competitions? Do you sort of encourage them not to read it? Uh, you know, do you encourage them to not engage in social media or do you just try and teach them this resilience, which actually then spills over into the way they interpret those messages externally? I think it is so much tougher for the athletes now. And I, I, you know, I think some of the England players and, and some of the, the athletes that I know that are, that are competing on the world-class stage in their teams, it's really tough for, for them to not engage. That's the world that they've been brought up in. Um, and in answer to your question, again, it's the individualized approach. So I, I've worked with athletes that would 
buy an alternate phone for for the olympics and the only people that had that number were the people that were immediate family and that they would have a complete shutdown on social media from five days out a week out two weeks out etc there are other athletes though that 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 can, that can use social media and do use social media quite positively um, I think the biggest education for, for the athletes is the understanding that they cannot control how what they put out is um, interpreted and perceived. And so it's it's an education piece around how they use it and then the the, the pitfalls and, and helping them and supporting them through some of those because they, they do come and they do read feedback that is pretty negative at times and, and can have a, a significant impact. And it, it's taking them back to who is important, who are the, who are the opinions that you listen to, who, where does your confidence come from? And it's trying to help them develop a robust sense of who they are and who's important to them and where they need to go for their, their focus of attention to give them almost a, a shield against some of, the, some of the external noise. And there's a huge amount of external noise, isn't there? It's, it's, it's social media, it's, it's the media in general. It could be, you know, things that take place during the game. It's the ability to move away from that and focus on what's important at, at, at that moment in time. And partly that's an educational piece. Partly it's having strategies to enable them to, to do that. And partly it's experience. So let's let's um, move up to the next level now and think about the sort of coaching environment and the team environment that you've seen. So we've mm. seen Simone Biles, uh, we've seen um, Stokes come out with sort of mental health concerns and, and their environment, their organisation or their team culture must have been fine for them to, you know, be able to report that. And I think it's absolutely liberating that they were able to do it. Um, what do you think, what are the characteristics of the very best coaches you've seen for creating this balance between the, the sort of kind of challenge and drive that we need to push people out of their comfort zones and realize their potential, but also to be supportive as humans, uh, you know, of them as, as whole people rather than just performance tools. What have you seen some of the coaches balance that environment? Um, I think there's been a huge shift in this regard over, over recent times and certainly the amount of performance lifestyle, mental health support that exists within the high performance system is, is incomparable to, to a few years ago. Um, and I think that it's an understanding of, of, of how we create environments that promote positive mental health, but are also conducive to high performance because they don't need to be opposite ends of the same continuum. And I think it's finding the sweet spot in the middle where we can really drive extraordinary human performance, but in a way that's conducive to mental health. And that is certainly the approach that the high performance system is, is taking. Um, I think it comes from um, the, the best coaches that I've worked with are quietly very good sports psychologists. They understand themselves and how they've responded and they've spent time reflecting on how they can best support those within their care. They're psychologically very astute. They understand how to get the best out of the individuals in front of them, but also how to drive an environment that enables um, people to develop, to develop their performance. Um, the, the, the EIS have done a, a huge amount of work, the English Institute of Sport around um, mental health in high performance sport and the prevalence rate of mental um, health concerns within that population is very similar, in fact, to a normal, a normal adult population. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that the levels of support in high performance support are actually far greater. 
um, and for, for our athletes that, that need that, there is a, a fantastic referral network that enables them to access the support that they need. Um, but the coaching point is about, essentially, they drive the environment. The coaches are responsible for driving the environment. So how do they create an environment that's psychologically safe? How do they ensure that the athletes are able to take interpersonal risks, that they are able to, um, to speak up, to communicate effectively and honestly without fear of being reprimanded? Um, and, and the best coaches are able to do that whilst also being technical wizards in their in their sports. We've got a lot of our clients at the moment speaking about psychological safety. It's a great phrase, but it's not always clear what it means. And, and I look at it almost as, as the sort of environment, really, because you've got loads of turbulence and uncertainty, yet the need to deliver short term results for the leaders. They become very directive and potentially shouty and angry and intolerant of mistakes and imperfections. Then you've got some well-meaning, hardworking, caring individuals trying to perform at their very best, but they know they'll get shouted at and they're trying to keep their heads down. And, and ultimately, if that carries on for a few days, you can probably get away with it through a project deadline or whatever. But if that stays for months and months, you're going to end up with burnout and some psychological scars, aren't you? So how do you see... What, what do you see as the sort of practical interventions for, for building that psychologically safe environment? And, and what does it mean to you? The term psychological safety, I think, is quite often understood, misunderstood. I think people sometimes interpret psychologically safe environments as a soft, kind, um, caring environments, which they are, but they have a huge amount of challenge. Essentially, what a psychological safe environment is, is one where there is a shared w- willingness to take risks without fear of of reprimand and and so in a sporting context high performance sport is extremely challenging and the 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 key is to ensure that the high levels of challenge are met with high levels of support Um, and and i always kind of think of it as that they should be challenging and anxiety inducing and stressful they just shouldn't be like that all of the time and they should be fun and enjoyable and they shouldn't be like that all of the time either. And it's just having a balance between how do we meet high challenge with really good levels of support so that we provide the best opportunity for people to be able to develop, grow and thrive. Um, and and psychologically, safe, psychologically safe environments essentially are dictated by leadership. It's leaders that have um, that take time to enable people to to speak to them they are they're willing to show vulnerability they promote environments where people are um give positive reinforcement for taking risks even if they don't come off um and those things have to be consistent and and i think this is sometimes something that you see in in high performance sport it's really easy to be relentlessly process focused and create good psychologically safety, good psychological safety and show vulnerability and do all of these things. And and as you get closer and closer and closer to competition, that becomes harder because suddenly the focus is on, well, results. And the the best coaches that I've worked with are the coaches that are able to remain remain consistent in their behaviour and their messaging, regardless of proximity to competition. Yeah, great. That's interesting. The, the, the heat of battle is coming up, yet they're still staying cool headed and focusing on the ingredients of performance. Yeah. And, and in, in the environments that you've seen sort of looking at the biosecure bubbles or whether it's in, in sort of normal time, you know, these camps or tours going on for long periods of time. How how do you monitor what kind of warning signs can you see if somebody's mental health is starting to fade or become a bit of an issue? Because 
one of the challenges is it's still seen as a bit of a stigma. So people try and hide it or they may say it's a hamstring injury or there's, they sort of mask it in a different way. Just for the, obviously, a lot of the corporate um, execs and, and clients watching, they might be thinking, well, how do we spot these things and how do we monitor this in a fast-paced, dynamic environment? Yeah, I think it's, um, the. I think back to the preparation around, around Tokyo and the Olympics. I think that word is is really key is is preparation and to give you a, a practical example of that the all of the BOA staff were mental health trained in the lead into the games a significant number of them were giving additional training around mental health champions and and had the skill set to detect and to offer first response support to individuals that were finding it difficult and then there were um Clinic, clinic clinicians on hand that had had even further training around uh, de-escalation etc um but there is something that all of us can do really really simply around just self really really good self-care and the reality around mental health it isn't an all or nothing thing there's a continuum and we move up and down that continuum all the time as individuals sometimes on an hour-to-hour basis sometimes on a day-to-day and sometimes on a week-to-week but we always move up and down that continuum and our well-being is well-being is an umbrella term for our our physical health, our psychological health, our social health, our professional health, our spiritual health. And sometimes just in undertaking an assessment of okay, well, where are we actually on these things, and and what are some of the strategies that I need to put in place, and how might I do that, and what might get in the way, and what does that look like? And and that was that's one thing that I would say to everybody on this call: engaging in really good self-care keeps you at one end of that continuum more so than than the other um and we did a huge piece of decompression work post the olympic games and those individuals that had had a difficult time were the ones that for a multitude of different reasons had not been able to execute their self-care strategies and had come away from their north star and had got their roles confused and were not undertaking the things that they needed to undertake in order to be able to um, perform optimally from a psychological point of view is so so important for all of us so you're almost saying that you know you've got your gold medal sort of dangling in front of you you've got to have a process focus of you know the squats the protein shakes the the twists and turns that you've got to perfect that's your process don't worry about the gold medal focus on the process but then Mm -hmm. even the level below that is make sure you're you've got a solid mental health foundation that if that Absolutely. isn't in place because you've got distracted by the gold medal or someone's arguing with you and you get pulled away or there's family tensions or whatever that pulls the the sort of structure away so you can't even deliver your sports process which is never going to deliver the results and then i guess it spins and spins doesn't it so yeah what, what, absolutely it's a, it's a nice it's a nice way of it's a nice way of putting that yeah if somebody's looking to make January and, and next year, you know, very, very different and, and have much more of a solid foundation to their self-care and mental health. What what two or three strategies would you advise that they prioritize? I think I think there's a couple of things there. I think that it's been really interesting talking to athletes and staff over this period around people have taken holiday and come back and it hasn't actually helped. <laughs> that that we've had a really turbulent 18 months with huge amounts of pressure, huge amounts of uncertainty. And, you know, in the Olympic world, because of the delay to the games, we had people in leadership positions who are trying to um, simultaneously navigate a a COVID safe games, selection, 
funding decisions, Paris planning, and, and we talk about going into the games fresh and staying fresh. People are going into the games really tired. Mm-hmm. And then there are lots of people in the system that have taken the holiday and still feel really tired. And part of it is how are you utilizing that time off? And, and are you um, are you using it in a positive way? Are you c- connecting with others? Are you are giving yourself permission to ride the wave of, of emotions? And a really, a really big piece of this for me, which we've encouraged all of our um, athletes and staff to engage in is just a, a decompression process of actually reflecting on this past 18 months and trying to make sense of some of the emotions that people have experienced. And it, it actually takes some um, structured time and sitting down with somebody else to, to do that usefully. And, and we think that we, you know, we think of these things and yeah, I've put that to bed. But when you actually articulate your experiences and you start going through it and you start to, to make sense of, 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 of some of the difficulties and some of the, the areas of growth, it can be hugely helpful moving forward. Um, when we first went into lockdown, we automatically as a psychology team ask questions around, okay, well, how do we help support our athletes here? And there's lots of really good examples, aren't there, of, of space voyage or nautical expeditions where people have gone off in isolation for periods of time. But the significant difference here was is that those individuals had made choices to do that and had extensively planned for it. And here we were in a situation where one minute people are going about the business and the next minute they're locked down and they can't see their friends and family and they can't leave their homes. And actually, there was a really good, there's some really good research from the Red Cross around how um, hostages are helped to reintegrate back into society after a period of, of isolation. And we actually utilised that as a basis for a lot of the work that we did with our athletes in terms of, of just debriefing their experiences, helping them to make sense of the emotional responses, um, identify areas of growth and then forward plan. And a lot of that was about people re and visiting their purpose and their why and and why are they doing the things that they're doing and what have they what have they learned and how can some of that learning help them move forward yeah it's fascinating the simplest thing is just to talk to somebody is it forces you to explore the narrative from a different perspective doesn't it it's like they might ask you um why did you choose to do that or could you have done this and you wouldn't normally if you're just repeating that in your own mind you wouldn't have gone down that route so that's why it's good to get out of your own head and speak to somebody else about it and the other thing that i think is a bit of a myth is is that sort of idea that we've got to go from frenetic and busy to on a yoga mat sort of deep breathing and, and that sense of mindfulness which is fantastic um i think some performance people sometimes struggle with mindfulness because it's so um is it's sort of so still uh, and they they go from sort of sixth gear to to no gears and for me i think a lot of the time for me to switch off i need to be doing something different not just doing nothing and sitting on a sofa because my brain's still back in sixth gear and i think for me mindfulness is doing something where your mind is full um so we saw tom daly knitting uh you know that takes quite a lot of thinking to, to to do that it may be skiing it may be cycling, it may be, you know, reading or something. So your mind is still very busy, but it's on something completely different to what you would have been doing with your work. And, and that helps you to switch off, doesn't it? And, and give you that break. So yeah, it's just focused on the, on the here and now, isn't it? Rather than, you know, crystal ball gazing or, or overanalyzing the, the past. Yeah. And, and, and I think it links back to the self-care piece as well. We quite often feel like we need to take a holiday in order to feel better. Well, actually, our buckets are being 
uh, becoming full all the time and we are experiencing small stresses every single day and if we're not careful then those buckets become very full and spill over and essentially it's the small stuff that we're doing regularly and sustainably that, that that keep things at bay and enable us to stay on a on a healthy part of that mental health continuum so so daily self-care rather than a so I hope you enjoyed that. There's so many valuable insights from Kate there. Here are a few of my takeaways. Firstly, it was that winning mindset is based on a solid foundation of confidence. And this is sort of a group of evidence-based beliefs that we can deliver our skills under pressure, whether we're in sport or business, we know that we can deliver. And to see the evidence and to have that evidence accessible at that key time, we've got to have documented it previously. So I love that image of the coach talking to the athlete about banking all of those notes from training into that piggy bank, because when she cracked open that piggy bank of training evidence, it must have been such a confidence boost for the nervous Olympian. And I'm sure we can all replicate that in our own world. The next thing was around psychological safety, where people can take those interpersonal risks in our teams and that the leader needs to remain stable and supportive, even as the pressure mounts. Do you think we can do that with our teams this year? If we can't, they're going to close down as we get closer to the sales pitch or to game day. So it's really important that we remain stable and, and balanced in it. And I also like how Kate spoke about psychological safety not being soft. I think that's one of the elements I've picked up in in the corporate world. But it's this balance between high challenge that you need to get the best out of people, but high support that, you know, allows them to realise that there's emotional support, team support. And, you know, there is safety in that environment as well as challenge. And that's the key, getting that balance right. And then self-care, it's the bedrock that everything else is built on. This is one of my frustrations with organisations that pride themselves in being high performers. They just speak about skill sets and sort of functional skills rather than mindset and interpersonal skills. Because if our mindset isn't strong and we don't have healthy relationships, then our skills are really redundant. So we need to consider how we can invest time and energy into these foundational mindset strategies so that we can perform better in the year ahead. And Kate's point about decompression really resonated as well, that um, when we go through change and uncertainty and have conflicting priorities, the holiday periods that we have sometimes don't refresh people as much as we think they might. And that's what the Olympic coaches found. But sometimes we need to help people to process the emotions, the anger, the frustration, or the sense of loss that we've experienced before we can truly feel free and feel liberated to start again with renewed energy. So I guess that's a question for us all to ponder on. Have we processed almost the grieving process of what we've been through in the last 18 months, two years, so that we can set that aside and, and start to set some new goals? And then that final point about taking stock, about reassessing our goals and our purpose and trying to align the next set of choices against that. Well, we might not all be Olympians, but I think we've all had some Olympic struggles of our own over the last two years. So these psychological strategies are going to be so important for us all to build out and consider in the coming months. 
I really hope that you've enjoyed today's insight from inside the mind of champions and from Dr. Kate Hayes and that you're starting to get back into the swing of things in your own business and in your own life this new year. If you'd like to explore the winning mindset for your business or some of the other issues like psychological safety or helping people to navigate change in your business, then do let me know. You can contact me at hello at sportingedge.com. I've got a range of keynote speeches and webinars lined up in the coming weeks with banks, insurance businesses, and even a group of leaders from Sandhurst Military College. So I'd love to support you with some of the insights that you need from our research. I'm sure many of us have got the intentions to make this year very different, but it's not going to happen unless our mindset and our habits are different. So I'd love to welcome you into our members club, which is a brilliant global network of coaches, entrepreneurs, HR directors, teachers and senior execs who all appreciate the importance of investing in themselves, their mindset and their leadership so that they can all benefit from this boost in performance. You can join us free for a month using the podcast 100 code when you join at sportingedge.com. You just need to type podcast 100 without a gap into the discount code box on the members club and you'll get a free month and be part of that community and get a free trial. We've got some amazing interviews lined up. So if you join as a member today, I promise you'll be amazed at the digital toolkit that's at your fingertips. It's all aimed at helping you to think better and work smarter this year. And if you've got any questions that I can answer in some of the micro lesson episodes, then please do send them through either as a voice note or as an email to hello at sportingedge.com. I'd love to help you to make a fast start in 2022. So the new year has turned into this year. So let's make sure we give it a good shake. Until next time, good luck. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.